0: Midwife Podcast. This is Missy. And this is Kara. We're having a really like fun morning, right? Oh, yes. (laughs) Oh, my. Uh, Also, it's January in the Midwest. And I just want to say that like, January just feels like one big Monday.
1: It also feels like it's been eight months. And it's, uh, what is today? Well, it's the end of January. I
0: mean, it has been the longest month. This is 27th. I feel like January has like 8,459 days. Yes. Yes. I'm over it. There's
1: this funny thing that I've seen about the Midwest as well of like first winter, muddy season. Uh, you know, like we go through various, there's various iterations of winter. This has been hardcore winter where I'm at for the last few weeks. And now we're in that like everything's melting and it's brown and gray and disgusting. I love snow. I love snow. Not, not at this stage, not
0: at this stage. It's ugly. Yeah. It's like rainy and disgusting here and everything is gray, but I also think we're going to get more ice and weather in the next couple of weeks. So I'm just like, wah, wah, wah. I know. I know. It we need Some this. sunlight. Um, I though am appreciating, a fireplace and a couch and snuggling up and watching Oscar nominated movies. I did some of that last night. That's fun.
1: I, um, I think I finally have my Netflix trained to where it doesn't ask me if I'm watching anymore. Um, So thank you Netflix for figuring out how to not do that. But I feel like we should get awards for uh, like literally sitting and watching an entire series in a weekend. Like, yeah,
0: I mean, I'm going to do that next week, I think, um, because I haven't watched the new Bridgerton series, and I haven't watched the new or the new, yeah, the new season, and I haven't watched the new season of The Crown, which is also not like me. Oh yeah, I'm caught up on that. Um, uh, so I'm giving you a tip, until listeners, if you weren't going to watch Niad, which um, it's uh, Jodie Foster is nominated as best supporting actress, and. Nope, I've totally lost it. Who plays the lead? But she's also nominated for Best Actress in a Leading Role. Um, it's a true story of Diana Nyad, and she Ooh, the swimmer. tried. Yes, the swimmer. She tried to cross from Cuba to Key West when she was young, and then she decided that when she was in her sixties that she was going to try it again. And like the whole movie, I was like, it was a riveting. I was literally like sitting on the edge of my seat and i also have a swimmer and you know you're married to a swim coach so there's just some of that but also yeah. some of the performances like were just so like mind blowing that now i need to watch all the other movies to see if all of those performances are just as mind blowing because like it is not nominated for best picture but these two leading actresses are nominated in their categories so that was my first of my list of the things i need to watch um We're going to go see Oppenheimer tonight, so I will know about that. And so anyway, it's Oscar season, and so one of the things that I get, like, way behind this time of year when it's gross outside is, like, I'm going to watch eight or ten movies because I want to understand why people are winning Oscars for these movies. That's awesome. Also, I would like to say the plot of the Barbie movie is about overcoming the man, and I love Ryan Gosling. Love. I do, too, and he's excellent in the amazing. movie. Amazing. Yeah. He was amazing in La La Land. Like, there's all kinds of movies that I can... He's
1: good in life, too. Like, he's a good dude.
0: Uh, he's in a long-term relationship with Eva Mendez. Of course he's a good dude. And he calls her his lady. I love that. I know. But, but, for him to be the only one who gets, yes. like, an actor or an actress nomination for Oscars is just not okay. Agreed. Agreed. Not okay. And they're like, well, everybody else got nods, and like, as the producer and it, for the best original screenplay. And I'm like, no, no, it doesn't, no, it doesn't count. But there, I mean, there are some powerful performances that are nominated, but and and um, America Ferrara, I'm like, you, you show us, girl. But yes, yes, Margot Robbie got robbed, robbed, okay. robbed. So I digress, and that was a fun little catch-up. What are we talking about today?
1: Well, I mean, we are talking about one of the most thrilling topics
0: ever—a little vaginitis. No, that's silly, vagina. Well, I mean,
1: it's yeah, it's a slow little ecosystem, and sometimes things just get a little awry.
0: Ecosystem, I. People laugh all the time because I stole this quote from Dr. Oz where he was like, vaginas are self-cleaning ovens and you don't need to put anything in them to clean. And I'm like, it is. It's like its own little oven and it does all the things. And when it's working like it's supposed to, and when it's balanced like it's supposed to, it will do all of the things, right? Right. And then there's times when it doesn't.
1: There are times when it doesn't and vaginitis is probably the number one complaint of why people come in and seek like episodic care in GYN. Like, um, when things are working fine, people come in for their well woman visits and that's it. The thing that will bring them in for a problem visit oftentimes and most frequently is vaginitis.
0: Yeah. And it's the thing too, that I think a lot of women try to fix on their own and, um, you know, as women's health care providers, it's I think understanding helping women understand their vaginas and how they work is one of our like big roles, like, hey, right? There are all kinds of things that this amazing part of your body can do, right? And understanding like how it works and understanding like physiology and when we sh- when we should treat something and when we shouldn't. And I mean, Sexual health, like it's just all the things, right? We play a huge role in just the idea of like patient education. I, If I could have an hour long visit with patients, I would tell them all the things, right? But instead I get to provide it in like five and 10 minute snippets of like, here's what I'm going to tell you that's going to be important. And like, this is a conversation for another podcast, but like, how do we condense information when we only have a short amount of time to give it? Mm -hmm. and figuring out like what your top three things are. And so me saying that a vagina is a self-cleaning oven, please don't put anything in it to clean it is like one of my bullet points when I'm talking to people about vaginitis or odor or itching or anything like that. Yeah,
1: I think we've talked about it previously. Of Like I have this little spiel about like the care and keeping of your vagina and vulva and um, getting those scripts down is really important. I think what we should do today is not necessarily focus on our typical vaginitis because most people are pretty comfortable with straightforward, we'll do a little summary, but then I think we should probably spend some time on the um, more complicated, uh, recurrent vaginitis, things that aren't responsive to typical treatment, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. And the stuff that like, we don't like most of us. And I think what we're going to start with a little bit of just like review of common vaginal like discomforts and infections and things like that. And we're going to stay away from STDs because that's a whole nother situation, uh, and STIs, but, um, it's just like, we are good at treating the normal stuff, right? Very typical presentations of yeast, very typical presentations of BV, Right very typical right. presentations even of atrophic vaginitis it's right. when things either don't get better get worse come back with a different set of symptoms right um or they have like a recurrent vaginitis or they have an atypical vaginitis right those are right. the things that i think we don't feel as comfortable with like treating, diagnosing, recognizing that this isn't like something that's super typical. And um, yeah, I think that that's what we should climb into. Sounds good. Sounds good.
1: So let's talk about some of the um, common kind of clinical findings, complaints, um, diagnostic criteria for our straightforward vaginitis. Sound good? Yep. Okay. So one of the most common um, infections, conditions, uh, it's not, it's hard to call it really an infection, but vulvovaginal candidiasis, VVC, candida being yeast. And so this is a yeast infection. Um, and typically the symptoms are vulvar and vaginal. So that's why it's vulvovaginal itching, soreness clumpy white discharge typical right like cheese like is what people oftentimes describe it
0: as and the description of like I want to put something in there to itch it,
1: yeah, I always think uh you know the bottle brushes that you clean baby bottles with I'm always like if you want to put that in your vagina and vigorously
0: uh you know shake it back and forth, that is most likely a yeast infection, yeah, or a toilet I used to like tease like a toilet brush. Right. Yeah,
1: yeah. So the itching and the itching can be so bad that people will have some bleeding, excoriation, that kind of thing, just because the tissue has become so excoriated from the itching and the scratching. Mm-hmm. So that um, typically, if we look, at, if we do our AMSOLS criteria, which is doing our saline wet mount, KOH whiff test, pH, um, our amsels criteria, oftentimes your pH will be between four and 4.5 there will not be a whiff um and when you on the koh so the potassium hydroxide side you will see like these little pseudo hyphae sometimes some little spores um i once had an instructor tell me it looks like spaghetti and meatballs but i always think of like little branch stick kind of things on my um uh, microscopy yeah Okay. So then next most common I would say is bacterial vaginosis. I feel like BV, um, sometimes that's what I feel like all I see in clinics all day long. Um, and the most common complaint with BV is odor and discharge. Typically um, people can have some like just discomfort from the amount of discharge, but it's really not typically like painful they don't have dysperunia and that kind of thing like you can with yeast. Um, it's more of a, like, thin white gray kind of discharge. Um, and But the odor is really the significant part. And that odor can increase after intercourse. It can, you know, those kinds of things.
0: So, That's the one that I feel like we, like, when I think about just, like, typical infections, I think... Yeah. Is it itchy discharge or is it odor that they're complaining of? And that generally can get me down the right line.
1: It can, but the AMSL, like really doing the wet mount and all of the criteria is important because you can't always tell just by looking at someone or hearing their complaints. You can have a really good idea, but it doesn't always, it's not always a hundred percent. Correct. So with BV, your pH is going to be greater than 4.5. You will. um have a positive whiff. Um so when you do the KOH and like we we laugh about it. you don't really typically have to have it right up next to your nose to have a positive whiff. You can tell from a bit away. Um and that you won't see anything on your KOH side of your slide, but then when you look at the saline side, you're going to see these epithelial cells that are kind of coated in little um bacteria and it kind of looks like a fried egg with like pepper all over it and so those are called clue cells. Um, okay. So BV and then trick being our other really common vaginitis, um, depending on where you're at and what kind of population you take care of, you may see more trick than others, but certainly it, um, will have an, an, an odor to it. Um, I I always frothy, frothy discharge. Um, I hate that should only be like on your cappuccino, Yeah, like you coffee. don't want it in your vagina. Um, and it can be kind of a greenish yellow discharge. Um, you can have uh, some pain just from the amount of irritation. Um, when you do the exam and you look at the cervix, it will look like a little strawberry cervix. It's got the little paticie covering because it's so um, so uncomfortable and um, irritated. Your pH again is going to be greater than four point five. You will oftentimes have a positive whiff, but it's not required for diagnosis. Um, Your KOH side of your slide is going to be negative, but on your saline side, you're going to see some um, motile protozoans. (laughs) Um, A single cell has a little flagellated tail on it, um, and that is pretty typical of your trick.
0: People sometimes ask, so I'm going to like give you this thing, like, how do you know that they're not sperm versus trick? You ready? Yeah. So trick has a great big head and a little tiny tail. It yeah. almost looks like a triangle that's like swimming around with a little baby tail, right? Kind of like what we'd say, like T-Rex has a big head and little tiny arms. So that's yeah. what Trek looks like. But sperm are definitely small heads, long tails. So that is your defining characteristics when you're looking at what might or might not be on your slide.
1: I'm never going to think of it the same again. I'm going to know that trick is the T-Rex of moving cells on my microscopy.
0: Great big head, pretty tiny tail. (laughs) Awesome. It's true, though. And I think we sometimes feel like students or like new midwives, like it's some of the things that they have a hard time, right? Like understanding. And I think that sort of puts it into perspective.
1: Well, and, you know, in teaching students recently, we were talking a lot about so many offices and so many places don't have microscopes anymore that they either send their slide and saline, you know, their swab down to a lab that is in their facility or um, it's a send out test and you get results back in a couple of hours.
0: So. Okay. I of- have an aside to this. Cause this makes me, I guess, angry is a, the best way I can do it. Um, I sent a slide down to a lab in a hospital that I was working at, not my normal hospital, but I was filling in a, like locum someplace And they told me that the patient wasn't ruptured. It was like a ROM plus slash, you know, and I also sent like a slide, an actual slide. And they're like, Mm -hmm. nope, no burning. And I was like, I would like to come downstairs and use your microscope. Because I'm pretty sure that for 20 years I've been looking at burning and you probably not. Yes. I mean, the patient was clearly ruptured. And the problem with it was is that she was only like 23 or 24 weeks. Oh, yeah. Babe. And so it's not just missing a term like prom or shram. It was like there were a lot of things that needed to go into the care of this person. So yeah. if you were in a facility where they say, like, oh yeah, like we do this in our lab, I would ask a lot of questions about. Like, how do you get trained to know what these things look like if you're looking at them under the microscope? Because, you know, we obviously get a lot of training on that. And I'm, so it's just kind of a, a personal pet peeve. But I also think that if you're working in, a, in an inpatient unit where like me, like triage, right? For me to have a microscope there, that is a diagnostic tool that I cannot go without.
1: I agree. And I love the idea of putting my clinical evaluation, like my assessment, my eyeballs, my smell, you know, like everything. Like I have come to what I think is my diagnosis and then being able to follow it up by seeing the microscopy, doing the whiff test, that kind of thing. It's just really nice to be able to put all the pieces together. So we've talked a bit about the normal kind of presentations of vaginitis, more straightforward, kind of common but I think we should talk a bit about when those infections, those conditions are recurrent. So we can get recurrent VVC, recurrent yeast, or we can get recurrent BV.
0: Okay. And this is the one that like, maybe somebody has treated um, at home, right? Or maybe like, they've tried it over the counter and, or you have seen them, right? And right. you have prescribed something and um, and it hasn't worked, right? Right, Right. So the definition for recurrent yeast or recurrent BV is
1: similar in that it is three documented cases within a year. So someone is um and these are symptomatic cases because if they're asymptomatic, we don't really care, um, generally, as long as they're not pregnant. Um these are symptomatic patients, three occurrences that have been documented by a provider within a year than it's recurrent yeast or recurrent BV. Okay, so recurrent BV, um, we'll start there, because I think that's the one that I typically see a bit more. Um, and you could end up having recurrence because you just didn't adequately treat it. You have inadequate treatment. It could be a reinfection, like re-exposure from your sexual partners, that kind of thing. Um, it really can just be reinfection. And then you could have like an infection relapse. You could have antimicrobial resistance. Those are a little bit more rare. More so, it tends to be that there's inadequate treatment or reinfection.
0: Yeah. Can we pause for a second when we talk about like inadequate treatment? Because, and I know that there are other midwives and providers who feel differently than me, but I feel very strongly about treating things where they are. And that means for me, like putting things in your vagina, if it's something wrong with your vagina, putting things in your vagina, right? First pass metabolism is you put something in your mouth, it goes through your stomach, it gets detoxified, quote unquote, um, by your liver before it gets to go someplace to actually work, right? And so but when we put something in our vaginas, it actually can work right there in your vagina. And I feel like that that treatment is so much better. So that's just a caveat to some of these like Hey, if you're ever wondering what to prescribe somebody, my feeling is always in your vagina.
1: I agree. um, Generally, there are times when oral treatment um, may be preferred by the patient, but I agree. I tend, you tend to get really good treatment of vaginal issues if you treat it vaginally.
0: I also want to say that most people are like, I just want some Diflucan if I have a yeast infection. Diflucan only has about a 30% first-time cure rate. So if you're treating somebody with one diflucan, only three out of 10 patients is actually going to get symptomatic and complete relief from one diflucan. So some of these, when we think about what the definition that you just said is three yeast infections or BV or some vaginitis in a year, you have to consider that idea of adequate treatment. If somebody is back right. in your office a week later, that is not a different infection. That's the infection that they still had that just hasn't been adequately treated. And so if diflucan happens to be your jam, or you have patients that are totally against putting something in their vagina, then it needs to be a more uh, aggressive treatment than just once. Um, And I have a lot of conversations with people who don't really want to put things in their vagina. But when you describe it the way I just did, which is like, things work better when you put them in your vagina, and then maybe we won't have this problem where we're like repeating treatments. Um, I think understanding how to have that conversation is a really great um, way in the office to like get to what you want your patients to try without forcing them or coercing them, just giving them information. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Sorry. No, that's okay. We're going to definitely spend some more time on
1: that um, in a bit. But while we're on BV, there's a couple of different, um, again, we're talking about recurrent BV. There's a couple of general ideas as you think about treatment. One, you might want to use a different regimen than what you've used for previous treatments, because maybe it's just that that treatment method wasn't working. Um, And then the other is really kind of extended um, treatment and not just the like, Episodic, one episode. I'm going to treat it. It's going to get better because this is someone that has recurrent. Um, If there has not, or if people have used multiple different treatment options in the past and they're still having recurrent, use the one that had the best outcome for them um, and and seemed to be the best resolution of their symptoms. So there's two general kind of treatment approaches to recurrent BV. And one is extended metronidazole, or flagell, and the other is vaginal boric acid. So let me really quickly tell you about the extended um, metronidazole, and then I think we want to spend a little bit of time talking about boric acid. So extended metronidazole is generally pretty well tolerated. It's easy to use. Um, It's not toxic, that sort of thing. It tends to work pretty well. You can do treatment with oral flagell or you can do the vaginal gel. Um, Really, it has to do with patient response. You've heard Missy and I say we kind of like vaginal treatments, but um, certainly if someone was doing, you know, an extended use, if oral is easier for them, then they could do that. So if you were going to do oral pills, you would use um, metronidazole. You could also use tinidazole, which is Tindamax, 500 milligrams Given orally twice a day for seven days. Or you could do the intravaginal therapy, which is the gel given as a five gram dose twice daily for seven days. And that is the more intensive extended. And then you could do maintenance. And the maintenance therapy is typically the gel. And you're going to do it um, intravaginally twice a week for four to six months. So that's not bad. I mean, a vaginal gel twice a week for four to six months, if it's going to make things get so much better, doesn't sound too horrible. So that is our extended metronidazole or tinidazole regimen that you could use.
0: What's the warning you give to your patients when they're on Flagell? Well, if it's oral,
1: you want to make sure that they know they shouldn't have any alcohol with it. They can have kind of a disulfiram kind of reaction and I've actually never had a patient have that, probably because we've done such a good job of warning people about it.
0: Yeah. It I always tell people like an abuse is like a medicine from a million years ago that used to keep alcoholics from drinking because it would cause right. this like severe reaction of like vomiting and whatnot. Yeah. And that's sort of the reaction is even if they don't vomit, it just can make them feel generally unwell. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, some
1: people um, with even with these extended regimens, um, when they stop the regimen, may have a return of symptoms, and that's a whole nother beast entirely. Um, you could be thinking about a vulvo-vaginal specialist to send them to, or something like that. But generally, if we kind of do this reset and this extended regimen, people tend to do really well. Now I told you the other option was vaginal boric acid. So let's talk about that. I'm gonna give a really quick warning that you cannot take boric acid orally. No. Big bad. Bad bad. Can die. Don't yeah. take boric acid vaginal. I mean orally. So um, Missy, do you wanna tell us a little bit about boric
0: acid? Okay, so the whole thing about boric acid is that it's just like a treatment that most people don't think about. Okay. And it's because like, we're so, I think in tune with like, oh, for yeast, you know, we use azole drugs and we put them in the vagina. And for BV, we use, um, flagyl or metroniazole like in the vagina, like there, we have, I think everybody has like a set thing that they choose. And this is something you and I talk about all the time is that, like I have a birth control pill that I really like and I have, everybody's got a thing, right? And right. so, but boric acid is something, and I will tell you, I had a, I had a situation with a, a young patient. She was maybe 16 a couple years ago where, I mean, I did every panel, uh, every, like all of the atypicals. I could not figure out what was going on in this little person's vagina and she wasn't sexually active. I mean, she, it's not that she was like putting any, like she wasn't using, you know, toys or there's just all these things that she wasn't doing, right? She wasn't wearing thong underwear, which is a whole conversation about what goes from your bottom up to your vagina, right? Right. Okay. I just couldn't put my finger on it. And you know, I'd done I'd done a wet prep. I had done, I we have these um the like gen probe swabs that we can send away for everything that's atypical. And right. I did find like that she did have this small colonization of something atypical, but it wasn't just responding to normal treatment, right? So this a couple of years ago is when I really took a deep dive into this situation with boric acid because I'm like, it isn't going to hurt, right? right? At this point, we have tried the things, right? I'd, I'd put her on Diflucan, like the one where you, the the regimen where you like take one and then you repeat it once a week for a month. I mean, I had done everything. Um, and so boric acid became like a, Hey, I want you to try this thing. I want you to try mm-hmm. putting this boric acid in your vagina. We can try it once a day. We can try twice a day. Let's just see if we can't, um, like recolonize your vagina with the good things. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So boric acid really is a great therapy for recurrent yeast generally, um, and, and yeast that you don't normally see like different species of yeast right. um the great thing about it is that it's super inexpensive and that people tolerate it really really well um and so there are recipes where patients can make this at home which is interesting right so it's you buy boric acid powder you add gelatin like you buy a gelatin capsule you put the powder in the capsule you put it in your vagina right yeah you can also buy it on amazon
1: You can also have it compounded if you have a compounding pharmacy.
0: I need to find a compounding pharmacist to be on our podcast because I am a total believer in compounded things. Um, Total aside, but like for people who are in menopause or perimenopausal that don't need great big doses of things in terms of what you can get commercially like to have smaller doses of things compounded is such a great option. This boric acid thing is also a great option. The nipple cream I love also comes from a compounding pharmacy. I think if you, I'm going to do some research and get us a compounding pharmacist to come talk to us because I just cannot tell you how valuable they are. But you can have the boric acid compounded into like an ovule, kind of like what you would see with like, um, like, kind of clio- like clio- I was going to say yeah. clexin or clindamycin ovules and then you just pop it into your vagina at nighttime um so there are lots of ways that you can do boric acid um but you treat it uh, in your vagina once a night for 2 weeks um again you don't take it by mouth and you uh, you it, you can do it you can repeat it in terms of like you can double the dose so you can do one in the morning and one at night um, you can extend it. I have actually found that boric acid once a night for a month works really, really well. And I will tell you that there is some actual really great research that has come out um, in the last you know, few years about using boric acid and um, not just for yeast, but for BV with some really good clinical outcomes.
1: Yeah, I wanted to just point out, you had said just a bit ago that it is indicated for recurrent yeast, but it absolutely is indicated for recurrent BV as well. So that's a really good point. And I do think probably, especially if it's recurrence, the longer period, I think 30 days sounds better than just two weeks of treatment. But um, yeah, this is really, really helpful to think about as another option, especially for people. I'm guessing it could probably be lower cost than the Metro gel, which can be pretty expensive.
0: Also, in the literature that's out, it it does talk a lot about really good patient satisfaction, which matters so much to me when I'm treating people for things like this. Um, and very few adverse side effects. I mean, I don't think we get a lot of side effects with things that we put in people's vaginas to treat these kinds of things. I think there are annoying things like when you wake up in the morning, all the medicine comes out of your vagina. And so it looks like you have a lot of discharge. That is just like a mechanism of action, right? If it's got to go in your vagina, that is a closed system. So it has to come out, right? Yeah. Um, but in terms of patient satisfaction with boric acid, you also don't get that discharge because it's a, it's like an ovule or a capsule that you put in your vagina.
1: Yeah. So I think all of this is really helpful. Um, we've been talking about recurrent BV. There are some kind of lifestyle hygiene things that we can also mention. Um, there are some people that find really good, um, resolution of symptoms if they use Condoms. For um, vaginal penile intercourse, um it's that if you're thinking about a pH change with introduction of any other substance, that can make sense that you're preventing the semen um, interaction with the vaginal fluids. Um, also, you know, it could be that you're wanting to make sure um, that people use good vulvar vaginal hygiene. Um, you don't want to do any douching. I think in general, that should be just. A statement, don't do any douching. Um, And then the other thing is that people will mention probiotics, and there is not any good evidence at all to show a link between probiotic use and reduced vaginitis symptoms, especially if you're trying to use the probiotics poorly. It will change the ecosystem of your gut, but it won't necessarily change the ecosystem of your vagina.
0: Again, first pass stuff, right? Like a lot of that stuff won't work. I also want to go back to this idea of boric acid that we were talking about because I do think that there are opportunities where you need to treat an indu- with an induction agent, right? You need to treat yeah. with e- something for yeast or something for BV and then the boric acid is the thing you follow with. Um, yeah. and so I I think that's a great regimen too. Um I was I was just going to mention um there are some like I said there are lots and lots of articles that will tell you like how to do your dosing for boric acid, I just want clinicians to like, put it in the back of their head to be like, if the normal things that you're doing aren't working, I really want you to consider this as another option.
1: I think it's a, and you had given me this recommendation before the University of Washington has a patient handout on boric acid. Um, And so I found that with a really quick Google search. Um, You know, you can also look at some of your other kind of evidence-based um, resources like up to date, um, other things out there. Uh, your straightforward vaginitis, your best recommendations are always gonna come from the CDC um, and your STI treatment guidelines have your vaginitis in there as well. That's the go-to for straightforward, but you can find these resources elsewhere.
0: Yeah, the article that I'm actually referring to, so I'll give everybody the reference is called Clinician's Use of Intravaginal Boric Acid Maintenance Therapy for Recurrent um, Vulvovaginal Candidiasis and Bacterial Vaginosis. The author, the lead author is Powell, P-A-W-E-L-L, and it was published in 2020. Um, It's so funny that I'm like, oh, 2020 was so recent. That was four years ago. That's just crazy how time flies. But um this is a great article because it shows you all the different dosing regimens that clinicians are using and I just think that there's some good information in terms of like statistics about like what works, what doesn't work and like all of the options. I will like going back to what you were saying about like no douching and having good hygiene and those kinds of things. I will and we have said this before when we've talked about toys, like cleaning your toys on the regular um because just because I don't, I'm not even going to like go any deeper into that conversation yeah. just with like plain soap and water, um, like, uh, mild soaps. And I always say that if you use dove soap, like it doesn't have anything in it, it's literally just soap and you can clean with those kinds of things. Um, but I do think that as we are talking about hygiene, that that needs to be a thing. And I don't know, have you and I ever gone down this like thong underwear train? like I on a podcast like we about it
1: yeah i mean in general that is one of my recommendations if people are having lots of vaginal symptoms is no songs it's like floss you're like flossing bacteria from one place to another no thong to thong 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 now i'm also a big fan of cotton underwear um total aside i remember my mom always making sure girls you need to let your vagina breathe um can we all just um. Agree that the vagina doesn't breathe, but we don't want synthetic underwear that's going to trap moisture and cotton tends to let, you know, there be a little bit um, less of that trapping of heat and moisture and that sort of thing.
0: I mean, I would rather you go commando than wear a thong. Oh, 110%. Yes. So I know girls are like, oh, it's cute and sexy and like all the things. And I'm like, mm. Maybe going without is here and sexier. I don't know. Um, I am I'm past that age where I care about my panties being cute. Um, but yes, I think that the thong situation is just. Um, I, I I would love to know the history behind the designer that created thong underwear. Um, also, because if you're worried about panty lines, there are so many other options that will avoid panty lines. It's so funny because you said to me when we were together in November, like, you have a panty line and you never have a panty line. And I'm like, it's because I have these crazy underwear on. But I, But there are options for wearing normal underwear that cover your booties then don't leave you with panty lines. And if you're worried about I'm, panty lines, don't wear panties. It must've been shocking to me because I'm shocked
1: that I mentioned someone's panty line because there is not anything that I could really care any less
0: about than someone's panty line. Um, no, no I just think you've never seen it from me in all of these years uh, maybe that's it. and you were maybe like, what it. is happening? And I'm like, it's these stupid Walmart underwear. The other part of this story is, I packed to go on this trip to do some exam prep things, and I had forgotten my underwear, my normal underwear. So I was at the liberty of whatever the Walmart had, and they were not like my vanishing line soma panties that never, never have panty lines. So that's
1: hysterical. I was just sitting here thinking, like, when did I quit caring about panty lines? Perimenopause has made me not care about a lot of things. Um, I will just say that I have zero. Zero fucks
0: again. Yeah. Yep. Nope. None. Um. Okay. So I'm going to get us back on track because I think there's something that we haven't talked about that I would like to get into. Okay. So I think we've talked about the recurrent things and the things that we can do for recurrence. And we've talked about the normal things and what we would do for those. Yeah. I feel strongly about the idea of mixed vaginitis, which is something that a lot of us are not looking at or looking for um, or considering that there might be more than one thing happening in the vagina. Yeah. We didn't touch on early on the idea that, um, that there are lots of things in the vagina, right? If a normal person who's not having any symptoms swabbed their vagina and looked at it underneath of a microscope, they would see there's a few yeast there, right? There's a few bacteria there. There's a lot of lactobacilli. There's a lot of um, epithelial cells. Right. And those are all signs of a good, healthy, functioning vagina, right? They, we should have all those things in when there's a problem in a vagina. It's because of an overgrowth of something that is normally are always there and always sort of like in check. So, um, when they think like, how did I get quote unquote, like air quote yeast, or how did I get BV? It's not that you, that you caught it. It's that you have things in your vagina that are normally there and now you just have an overgrowth of it that's making you symptomatic. Right. But I also think like when people don't understand that there's usually a little bacteria and a little yeast, like how can I have two infections at the same time? And right. so the, there, there are, again, there's a lot of literature coming out about the idea of diagnosis and treatment and presentation of mixed vaginitis. When we talk about mixed vaginitis, these are people who like have two or more because it can be more than two, um, abnormal flora that are contributing to the environment of their vagina. Yeah. yeah. So then what does that look like? It looks like a lot of things, right? It looks yeah. like you could have itching. You could have itching and odor. Interestingly enough, most people who have yeast don't have odor; they have itching and discharge. So, if you if somebody comes to you and they say, "I have clumpy discharge that itches, but it also smells bad," you should be thinking that potentially there's more than one thing going on in their vagina. Yeah, or
1: if they had kind of what we think of as like that green, yellow discharge, then white discharge that isn't clumpy, cheesy, but then they also have a ton of irritation. So again, it's that mixing up of symptoms of the different types of causes.
0: Yeah. And I mean, when we talk to about like, again, the STD, STI thing is a whole nother situation with cervicitis and dyspareunia and all the things that it can cause. But also women who have these kinds of mixed vaginitis also can have some of those super concerning symptoms that make you think like, do they have an STD, STI or is this just some combination of BV and candidiasis, um, cytolytic vaginitis or vaginosis, as well as trick. I mean, there's like a whole, like a top five list, I guess, of the most common things that people see in, um, in treatment of vaginitis. And so like the ones that I just said, right. Uh, vulva, uh, um, can't get the word out of my mouth. Vulvovaginal candidiasis, cytolytic vaginosis trick, which we talked about before, aerobic vaginitis, right, and bacterial um uh, bacterial vaginosis. Oh my gosh, so many osises and itises. But those are the things that when we're like, oh, what's going on in somebody's vagina? These are like major contributors to when people have mixed um, vaginitis. Yeah. can
1: we can we say real quickly cytolytic. Vaginosis and the aerobic, or you may have also heard it called desquamative um, vaginosis. Those two are more complex. They're kind of diagnoses of exclusion, and you've ruled out all of the common things. You've ruled out your STIs. Um, they tend to be a bit more of a like um, chronic kind of thing um, and inflammatory, if that makes sense. And so those are, they are part of your differential. They are part of the top five list, like Missy mentioned, but they are not super duper common. Um, and so, but you want to have them on your differential list. If you're not familiar with them, I'd go spend some time looking up cytolytic and desquamative.
0: Yeah. Um, I was also going to say too, that like, When we're diagnosing people with these mixed things, we're still doing, looking at clinical symptoms, understanding our clinical findings, right? And then what are the lab tests that we're looking for? So that can be gram stains, that can be PCRs. I really am super appreciative when somebody hands me a swab and says, this will test for everything. And I'm like, okay, great. And then I can get all of my atypical, right? Things like those are the the gen probes that we were just talking about. Like, what can we send away so that we can understand what's really happening in somebody's vagina? So it's the same kind of diagnostic workup that we would do for normal vaginitis. Right. But we're looking for then what can we isolate so that we can treat appropriately? Yeah.
1: So I think there's a couple of different like, Treatment recommendations and they make sense. One, treat what the cause is, um, and so that, that makes sense. You're still using, as Missy said, your diagnostic criteria. When you identify more than one thing, you're going to treat those things, but you're going to treat them as you normally would. One is that you want to treat any sexually transmitted infections. Obviously, um, that that kind of goes without saying, but that would be a priority for you in treating those. Um, and then, you know, you could treat whichever symptom is the most, uh, troublesome to the patient. And really our main goal is alleviating symptoms. Cause that's what we talked about even really early on in this conversation is these are people that are symptomatic. And so you want to alleviate symptoms and start with the symptom that's the most troubling to the patient.
0: I want to give everybody a reference. Because honestly, this article, I should like send it to AMCB and be like, hey, can you put this in our article set? Because I think people would learn a lot from it. Um, Because it's not published in like a journal where you or I or the normal like midwifery community would look for it. Um, It's called Recent Advances in Presentation, Diagnosis and Treatment for Mixed Vaginitis. um, November of 2021 in... Frontiers in cellular and infection microbiology. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't go look in there. That's what, what I mean. You wouldn't look for it. And the main author's last name is QI. Now I will not pronounce that correctly, but it's just those two letters, QI. And um I think it does an excellent job, I think, of breaking down all the different pathogens that can be causing yep. mixed type vaginitis. And I also think what's interesting, it's got a lot of criteria in here that I never knew. Um, you know, you were talking about AMSL's criteria earlier in the context of like how we like look for, um, diagnostic criteria for uh, vaginitis. But, um, this article also talks about Nugent's criteria. Um, there's a whole nother, um, Sibley's criteria, which I also like, I don't, these are like criteria for looking at vaginitis that I never like learned or or heard about. And it could be because that's more from like, it's not as much of a like clinical tool as what we would use. But I do think like this article does an amazing job. I think of breaking down, figuring the figuring out part, the part that I think is really difficult for us sometimes when we're in a clinical situation where we feel like a fish out of water, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the great thing about this article that Missy just shared with us is that it's open access, so you should be able to find it um, pretty readily. This is one I think I'm going to download and keep in my little, um, you know, resource list because it is really, really helpful, um, particularly as you think about those things that aren't as straightforward and um, single, single type uh, vaginitis.
0: Yeah, I think that the whole idea of this conversation is, is that as a midwife, as a brand new baby midwife, even, you should feel comfortable about treating straightforward yeast and straightforward BV and straightforward trick, right? Yeah. But, and, and, so I've I've been trying to replace and in my, or replace the word but with and in my criteria, in my like conversation, because I think like, why does it have to be a but? Why can't it be an and? So you should be able to treat those things and also recognize limitations when you have somebody who has an atypical presentation or who doesn't respond to the treatment that you've given them for what you thought was a straightforward vaginal infection. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: I hope this has been a good review for people for the straightforward treatment. Um, we've talked about recurrence, um, and how you can do some maintenance therapy to kind of try to reset the ecosystem. And then we've talked about when you can have, you know, the complexity of mixed vaginitis and multiple, multiple agents, multiple symptoms going on all at once.
0: Yeah. I hope this was a good review. I hope it wasn't too off track or too uh, disjointed, but I think we did a pretty good job today. So thanks for joining us for the Engaged Midwife podcast. We can't wait to talk to you again. Take care.